Well, good morning, One Church. What's up? My name is Carlo. I get to be one of the teaching pastors here. I'm glad that you are with us. We are in part four of the problem of God. So far, we have discussed the problem of God and science. We've talked about the problem of God's existence, the problem of evil and suffering. If you want to dig deeper into this topic or dig deeper, maybe you were really caught up when we started talking about creation and you want to unpack that a little bit more. We have a great resource for you. That is Mark Clark's book titled The Problem of God. We have them right by the next environment that you heard Pastor Luther talking about earlier. Swing by there. We've got them on the table. Suggested donation, $15. That's cheaper than the list price. Go ahead and pick up a copy of that book. It'll help you dig deeper, way more than we could ever do on a Sunday morning conversation. In fact, we've had people buy that book, share it with friends. We had someone order it on Amazon and ship it to a friend of theirs. Uh, They didn't even tell the friend they were doing it. They just knew, hey, this series is for you, and you're probably not going to listen to the sermon, but you might read this book. And so whatever you do, I encourage you, if you want to go deeper into some of this subject matter, um, check out that awesome book. Last week, as I mentioned, we wrestled with the problem of evil and suffering, and we learned that Jesus not only suffered for us, he suffers with us. And if you missed any one of these first three parts of this series, go to onechurch.tv, click on the watch messages tab there, and you can catch up or download the One Church app. I encourage you to do that, and you can also catch up on the message, share it with a friend. Today, we're going to talk about the problem of hypocrisy, everyone's favorite subject, right? Yeah, you guys are nervous already. I like it, you know, be very nervous, right? We're, we're going to be in the book of John, and we'll get there later on in the message. I've learned something the hard way over 15 years of public speaking and teaching is that no matter how much I repeat myself, how much I make things clear through slides and graphics and bumps, no matter how much I clearly try to communicate, someone will always misconstrue what I am trying to say. Have you ever been misunderstood? I remember having an argument uh, at a church staff meeting about seven years ago. It wasn't an argument because Christians don't argue. It was a uh, a heated disagreement whereby my blood pressure rose and I wanted to throw something. But it wasn't an argument, though. Uh, You know, I might have thought that they should die and jump off a bridge. But but it wasn't an argument. Nope. We were just Christians disagreeing in the Lord. Um, Anyway... Uh, someone around the table, they said, you know, Carlo, we really need to do a better job and, and we need to teach some messages on how to practically share your faith. I don't think people know how to practically share their faith. And of course, I got really defensive because I'm the one who at the time was writing all of the messages. And I start thinking back over 18 months and I'm like, what are you talking about? And I start listing like six different sermons we've done in the past year about practically sharing your faith. And I'm like, you remember the graphics and you remember the package? And it was just, you know, thousand yards stale. The person had no idea what I was talking about. And I got defensive thinking, how dare you tell me I haven't told people how to practically share their faith? And yet, I obviously didn't do a good job because someone on the team didn't even realize that we'd done six messages communicating that. And I was laboring under the misconception that everyone remembers everything all of the time. I was committing a preacher's greatest foul when it comes to communicating, and it's that assuming people are going to remember what the heck you said. 
Now, if you don't write down what you're hearing audibly, science tells us this, there's an 80-something percent chance you're going to forget within 24 to 36 hours anyway of what someone says. And so a lot of people labor under the assumption that people are going to remember what you said the first time. So I get misunderstood when it, when it comes to, to communication and sermon writing and all of that. On Facebook, social media world, any of you guys still on Facebook, social media? Some of you are. You can't hide because I see you and God sees you too, by the way. With, y'all like that there? No, seriously, we were on social media all the time. I try to keep it light um, and, and snarky at least once a week. Uh, uh, that's kind of my contribution to social media. If you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you're going to get Jesus, jokes, and jujitsu. That's about it. That's the three J's. That's where I live. That's all you're going to get out of my fo- following me. Occasionally, I might go on a trip, and you'll get 50 pictures in two days. But other than that, you're going to get Jesus, jokes, and jujitsu. Because I want to break up the, the monotony of baby pictures and political arguing and pictures of dinner. You know, the, the other lame things people are posting. I try to keep it real with a funny joke or something like that. Without fail, no matter how hilarious the joke is, and my wife would tell you all of my jokes are hilarious, by the way, no matter, no matter how hilarious and obvious the joke is, no matter how many people like it and love it and laugh at it and comment, there's always that one dude, you know I'm talking about, who misses the whole point of the joke. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, my friend, you are that person who's ruining jokes because you just don't get it or you don't have a sense of humor or whatever it is. I'll pray you get the spiritual gift of humor. That's not a real spiritual gift, but uh, I'll pray for you anyway that you would lighten up, right? It's Someone always misses the joke, and then they start these arguments and all this stuff, and they are laboring under the assumption that I really care what they have to say anyway. I'm just trying to tell a joke, and, and, and it just I hate being misunderstood through that medium, social media. Text messaging is another thing that gets me in trouble from time to time. When I was a a senior, a lead pastor, uh, I was only 72 hours on the job, and I got into another uh, heated disagreement, because we don't argue right now. We was an argument. I was mad uh, with our associate pastor, because I sent him a comment, and and I put an exclamation mark for emphasis, and he thought I was yelling, and it turned into this big thing, and like, he stayed mad at me for like six hours. Like, I was like, what is this dude's problem? I'm going to have to fire somebody my first week on the job. And it turns out it was all a big misunderstanding. We, it was all good. But it's because we communicated where there's no facial expression, and I was misunderstood. So now, if, if there's even a hint that what I'm about to text you could be taken out of context, you know what I do? Old school. I'm going to call you. Actually, if you, if you work with me, I'm going to get up out of my chair and walk down the hallway and talk to you face to face so that you can hear me and see me and so that there's no, do you, I hate being misunderstood. How about you? I hate when people throw a stone of judgment at me because they're misunderstanding where I'm coming from or, or what I really mean. Have you ever been on the receiving end of someone wrongly interpreting your words, wrongly interpreting your actions, making a big deal out of who you are or something that you've done. Maybe you have a tattoo and you, and you deal with people, you got a visible tattoo and you deal with people writing you off as maybe some kind of partier or some kind of thug. And you're like, look, I just wanted the Chinese symbol for truth on my neck. You know, now it, it doesn't say truth, by the way, it says crab's toenail. They got you. But either way, it looked good. You know, you're, you're not about the thug life. You just wanted the tattoo, right? Nevertheless, people see it, and they judge you. Maybe you happened to put on a Tennessee Titan T-shirt because it was laundry day, and that was the only shirt that was clean. 
Like, you just put on a shirt because it was a shirt. And then all day, you endure people. Oh, the Titans. Oh, you're a Titans fan. Like, bro, it's just a shirt. Like, you, why are you taking it so far? I just put on the, the only clean shirt I had, which was the Tennessee Titans shirt, and I put it on. And then all day, people are assuming something about you just by that one action. Maybe you're here, and you're a follower of Christ. You're a follower of Jesus. And now, people at your work people in your circle, they have found out that you are a follower of Jesus, and they expect you to never say, think, or do anything wrong because you're a Christian, and you got to have it all together. Have you been there? Misconceptions, misunderstandings. There's no limit to the misconceptions people have regarding the church. Some people say that the church is the house of God, you got to emphasize that D, the house of God, and it should be held in reverence, and you shouldn't chew gum in the house of God, and you shouldn't run in the house of God, and you shouldn't speak too loudly in the house of God, and, and, and people get really caught up about what church should be. However, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing about the house of God, guess what he said? You are the house of God. God's Spirit lives in you. The building is just the building until we show up. Then it's the church, right? Now, that doesn't mean you should cut holes in these leather seats. Don't do that. You know, you shouldn't spit on the floor. You should If your kid runs out there and they trip and fall, I'm just telling you, Pastor Carlo might laugh before he says, are you okay? I'm just, is this a safe space? Don't judge me. I might say that's, in my soul, I may say that's what you get for running. You need to sit your behind down. Some, oh, are you all right? Like, I'm just, I'm just being honest with y'all, right? Y'all don't want me to be a hypocrite. I'm just being honest. Like, I'm probably going to laugh at that boy for falling because he shouldn't have been running. Um, before I check them. Seriously, it's just a building until we show up. Now, that doesn't mean we disrespect it, but a lot of people get caught up in this misconception of what church should be. Look, church is people before it's a place, but the place matters. The place matters. For example, we don't have any room in here, so we got to go get some more space and place, and, and just because we're doing that, don't make it see all they care about is numbers. All they care about is space. No, no, no. You're missing the point. We care about people knowing Jesus. And so we want to create space for people to know Jesus. And that doesn't mean we're all about, why'd y'all buy a movie theater across town? Because we want more people to know about Jesus, right? Some people think the church should only be for people who are already Christians to come and get fed and then go out into the world and do their thing and share Jesus when they can. But I think in the scripture, I see this Jesus who's looking for those who are lost. He's seeking and saving those who are lost. And I'm not dissing anyone's strategy of how they do church, but it's just another misconception that people trip up and they stumble and they don't engage because they're caught up in that misunderstanding. There's a million misconceptions about the church, but I think the biggest misconception about the church is this. Church is perfect. I think the biggest misconception, the biggest misunderstanding we have about the church and by default about church people, Christians, is that they are perfect. They should never say anything wrong. They should never do anything wrong. Their kitchen sink should be clean. Their clothes should be folded. Their kids should be well-behaved. Their money should be right in their bank account. They should never have any debt. They should never think an ill thought. They should vote for the person that I think they should vote for. They should feel the way that I feel. And if they say anything that I deem offensive, they couldn't possibly be a Christian. That's what a lot of people think about the church, that there's no room for error. There's no room for mistakes. It should be perfect all of the time. And some have stayed away from Jesus and stayed away from the faith because they can't stand hypocrisy. And the hypocrisy they can't understand 
isn't blatant hypocrisy, which we're going to talk about later. The hypocrisy they can't understand is based on the false premise that Christians should be perfect. The hypocrisy most people throw at the church as this is why you all suck has nothing to do with blatant hypocrisy. It has everything to do with we're just a bunch of busted up people in need of a saving grace, and we're not perfect. People think we should have it all together. The reality, though, is that the church is just a bunch of imperfect people being perfected by a perfect God. That's what the church really is. That's what makes church beautiful. I'm glad that I get to be a part of a church where no perfect people are allowed, right? I'm, I'm, in fact, I think OneChurch.tv is the perfect church for people who aren't. It's the perfect church for people who don't have their stuff together. And the reason I'm, I'm passionate about that, and it's our big idea, is this simple truth. Jesus never called perfect people to follow him, but he did call you. Rather than fixating on hypocrisy, rather than fixating on the flaw of people, I would encourage you to fixate on who is Jesus, how did Jesus respond to brokenness and hypocrisy and suffering and pain, and how did Jesus respond to all these problems, and then what does that require of me? Throughout history, people have done some jacked up things in the name of Jesus and in the name of the church. From the Christian down the road who doesn't practice what they preach to witch hunts to the crusades, right? There's a long history of Christians who look nothing like Jesus. And yet, Jesus never called perfect people to follow him. So we're going to look at a story uh, written by one of Jesus' best friends, a man named John, where he kind of unpacks, we're going to look at two stories actually, where he unpacks how Jesus responds to hypocrisy, how he responds to brokenness, how he responds to mess. And I hope we can learn something about how we should respond to this issue as well. So we're going to be in John. We're going to start at the end of the book of John, John chapter 20. It'll be on the screen or the YouVersion app if you want to follow along. John 20 verse 19 says this, that Sunday evening, now i got to pause there. You know when a preacher says three sentence, three words and then pauses, it's going to be a long day, right? I hope you guys are you're, you're ready. I didn't even get three words into the verse, and I have to tell you something. i got to expound. No, seriously, context is king, right? Have you ever been misunderstood? Say yes. Most of the times you're misunderstood, it's because people don't understand the context. They didn't get your joke because they don't understand your sense of humor. They didn't get your joke because they don't understand the four references. Some of you are like next level, deep meta kind of jokes that you tell. And look, I wasn't with you in the eighth grade when Bobby fell off the bus. So the drunk joke doesn't make any sense, right? You got to give me some context for it to make sense to me. A lot of misunderstanding we have about the Bible, you have about the Bible, is because you don't understand the context. You read one verse, you pick and choose, you play Bible roulette, you close your eyes, and boom, let me read this. And you end up reading some God-awful passage from Jeremiah that's really, really, like, explicit. And you're like, that's what God's about? No. you got to read the context. So I don't want to do that to John 20. Let me give you some context. That Sunday night, whenever you come across a statement like that in the Bible, here's good practice. You should say, what Sunday night? So it says that Sunday night, what Sunday is he talking about? Flip back a chapter or so, and you'll actually see this is basically the night of Easter. You guys are familiar with Easter, right? That's the day Jesus rose from the dead. It's a big deal Sunday. So that evening, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. 
as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So these guys, they had been with Jesus for over three years. They'd seen him do great miracles, walk on water, open the blind eyes. They'd seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They'd seen him, I read this morning, they saw him take a couple of fish and some bread and turn it into this feast for over 10,000 people. When you count up all the women and children as well, it was a big deal. They saw Jesus do a lot of things, heard him teach a lot of things, including they heard him teach that he was going to be killed and arrested, but he would rise on the third day. And yet, in spite of everything they'd seen, in spite of all the evidence that he was the Son of God, when push came to shove, when the popo showed up to arrest Jesus, they all dipped. They all bounced. They all took off, right? Some of them might have turned snitch if they had the opportunity to save their skin. Peter, in fact, did say, I don't know this Jesus. I don't know who the bleep bleep this guy. Like he, he lost his mind when they tried to say that he was one of Jesus. All these guys failed epically. Can we just say you don't get much more hypocritical than to be one of the 12 apostles, and then when Jesus dies, you're hiding, afraid that you're going to be next, trying to figure out your escape plan? I don't think you can be more hypocritical than to look a man in the eye while you're eating dinner and saying, I'll die for you, cuz. And then as soon as the Romans come, boom, you're gone. One of the gospel writers tells us there was a young man in their camp that as soon as they arrested Jesus, he ran away so fast he left his clothes behind. Not even making the story up. Dude ran away in his drawers rather than get caught. He just got done saying, Jesus, I got you, man. I'm with you forever, right? Disciples for life. Nah, when push came to shove, they punked out. Now, I don't know about you. You might be more Christian than I am and say, I would never, ever turn my back on Jesus like that. I'm just saying, I am not holier than the great apostle Peter who denied Jesus as quickly as he possibly could when they turned the heat up on him. That's the context of this room. You with me? Jesus shows up in that environment, and look what he says. Peace. Shalom is the term. Peace. It's the opposite side of the coin of it is finished. When Jesus died on the cross, his last words was it is finished. The work of the cross, it is finished. It is done. And now Jesus says peace. It's almost like he's saying, listen, hostilities are over between you and God, and I want you to receive the fullness of God's blessings. Peace. Relax. It is well is what Jesus shows up and does. Receive reconciliation from God is what he tells a bunch of broken, messed up guys. During his ministry, Jesus promised his disciples that he would give them peace. He promised that he would be with them. And now, in the middle of their fear and their doubt, instead of Jesus responding to their fear with anger or disappointment, he speaks a blessing to their imperfection. Instead of Jesus looking at their hypocritical behavior and showing up with judgment and telling them how wrong they are for being afraid, he shows up and he says, peace. Peace. Husbands, when our kids don't get it right, they don't live up to our standard, what if instead of berating them for their failure, we blessed them into bravery? We blessed them into the behavior that we want to see them live out. Wives, what if instead of cutting your husband down when he doesn't live up to your standard of what he should have done, you speak peace, peace into his life? If you're here and you're not married, what if instead of fighting with uncertainty, you allowed the peace of God to be with you in the middle of your turmoil? That's just awesome that Jesus shows up in the middle of that brokenness, and he says peace. Verse 21 of John chapter 20, again, he said, 
Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So each gospel records a different version of what we call the Great Commission or Jesus' last words, his marching orders. There's one in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even in Acts. And Matthew 28 is the most famous of these passages. It's, it's where it says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Well, from some of us who have been around church for a while, you're familiar with kind of, okay, what did Jesus tell us to do after he ascended back to heaven. And each of the Gospels kind of closes with the mission of the risen Jesus. Jesus saying, okay, I'm alive. Now here's what I'm asking and calling all of you to do. What does that have to do with hypocrisy? Well, God is clearly not calling broken people. And that he shows up, John chapter 20, at the end, and his first words to these broken people are, peace as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Even with their fear and lack of faith, he calls them and he commissions them to go and live for him and lead people to him. He didn't make them take a class first. They didn't have to get right. They didn't have to sign a paperwork. They didn't have to do any penance. He just sees them and says, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Jesus never called perfect people to follow him, but he did call you. Let's keep reading. Verse 24, John 20. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Translation, Thomas wanted evidence. Seeing is believing. Verse 26, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly as before, Jesus was standing among them. I would at this point been like, bro, can't you use the door, like knock, like you can't just be showing up scaring folks, right? Jesus just shows up, and look what he says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Have you been there doubting, wanting to see some evidence before you'll take a step? Doubt is a normal thing. However, doubt can either cripple us or it can lead us to a greater understanding. And I love the posture of Jesus in this text because instead of beating Thomas up for his lack of faith, Jesus invites Thomas to touch him to see him. Luke's version even adds, he tells him to touch his feet. Jesus invites Thomas to follow the evidence to where it leads. He invites Thomas. He engages Thomas. Listen, if you're here and you're skeptical about this God stuff, be encouraged. God is not nervous because you have questions. God is not staying up at night on Wikipedia and YouTube trying to figure out how to answer the deep, dark secrets of your life. I think he's there with arms open and a big smile saying, bring it on. Not in a confrontational way, but in a way that wants relationship, in a way that wants to know you, that wants you to know him. And this is what Jesus does. Instead of throwing stones and preaching a sermon of, man, you got a lack of faith. What's wrong with you? Some of you came from that church, you know, where you, you don't have enough faith. That's why you're sick. You don't have enough faith. That's why you're struggling. You don't have enough faith. That's why there's problems in your life. Here, Jesus says to the man who walked with him for three, he doesn't say, hey, Thomas, don't you remember the storm 
like there was a storm and you guys were going to die. And I said, shut up, storm, and the water stopped moving. Don't you remember that? You remember when your boy Peter walked on water? Humans aren't supposed to do that, Thomas. You saw it with your own eyes. Shame on you, Tom. Jesus never says any of that. What does he say? Peace be with you. And then he invites this man full of doubt, skeptical as you can get. He invites him to touch and see. Jesus doesn't beat us up because of our flaws. He loves us in spite of them. He doesn't judge Thomas's flawed skepticism. He lovingly responds to it by saying, come and see. What a great picture of patience and love. Jesus literally has nothing to prove. At this point, the man has risen from the dead. Boom. Like that's the trump card of all trump cards, right? At this point, he's risen from that he has nothing to prove to anyone, and he still takes the time to walk with Thomas through his doubts, through his skepticism, through his misunderstanding. Friends, that's what the church should be like. When, when there's a gap between the real and the ideal, we have to remember Jesus came to rescue sinners and broken people. He knows our brokenness and our weakness, and so we should be so gracious to everyone who would ever take a step towards Jesus. In fact, the apostle Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians. He said, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. Paul is saying, listen, we've got this great gospel truth. We've got this great power of Jesus, but we're broken. We're messy. We can't contain it. Therefore, if we ever look like we've got it together or are doing anything worth anything, it's not because of our power because of this great God who works in us. Now, we got to be clear about something. Blatant hypocrisy, blatant hypocrisy, that is putting on a front, putting on a show, acting like your mess doesn't stink, acting like you saved yourself, acting like you've got it all figured out and you never mess up. There's no place ever in the kingdom of God for that. You understand what I'm saying? There's room for brokenness and the frailty of humanity because we're, we're messed up people. But when we take the position of God and act like we've got it all together and we don't need anything or that our rule keeping will say there's no room for that ever in the kingdom of God. And that, too, is a form of hypocrisy that keeps people from following Jesus. So some people, they've got a misconception of what hypocrisy is, what the church should be. They think we should be perfect. No, we shouldn't. We're, being, we're broken and messed up. But sometimes there is blatant hypocrisy happening in church world, and that turns people off. What's the worst movie you've seen? Oscars are on tonight, I think. You know, a couple days before the Oscars, they do an award show called The Razzies. They give out the, I think it's called The Razzies. They give out the award to the worst movies that have come out, like to the bad movies or the worst actors and actresses. When you think about a bad movie, what makes it terrible is usually the bad acting. It's usually bad writing, bad acting that happens. And I think one of the reasons people disconnect from church is because the acting is terrible. They get into environments and they see a bunch of people that they know are messed up, but they're here smiling and acting like they got it all together. Now, you should smile because we do have some joy. We're alive, right? Right? We could be dead, so you got a reason to smile. Oh, man, that made me want to throw up a little bit saying that because I don't like to smile. Now, but I'm caught now. I'm on... I'm on forever. This is going to be online of me saying, go ahead and smile. I was talking about y'all, not me. Don't worry about me. Uh, no, I'm just playing. Bad acting. They show up and they know you were at the club last night getting hammered because they were next to you. 
Why are you in here all amen, hallelujah, acting like you've never done anything wrong? Worse, why are you sitting there talking about somebody else's mess? Like we don't know yours, right? Oh, y'all got quiet now. See, that's, that's what I like. Y'all were good when I was talking about somebody else. But then your husband just elbowed you real hard there. You're like, ugh. Listen, the word hypocrite we see in the scripture, it literally means bad actor. Did you know that? It means bad actor. Acting like you're perfect, throwing stones of judgment, acting in the opposite of Christ is never a good thing. So here's what John teaches us about bad acting. He uses a great story that John, the best friend of Jesus, he sees it happen in real time, and he documents this story for us, and I think it's powerful truth for us to convey. It's found earlier in the book of John, in John chapter 8. Here's what happens. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down right in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped out again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. None of us wants to be a hypocrite. None of us wants to mess up. How do we respond when we see someone blow it and not live up to our standard? In this story, the religious leaders, they caught this woman in the act of adultery. I want to keep it PG-13, but you do know what you have to do to catch someone in the act of adultery, right? You know what your eyes have to see, where you have to be. They catch her and they present her, bring her to Jesus. And Jesus said, and they say, Here, here's what the law says. What should we do? And the way Jesus responds is just brilliant. He says, you're right. The law does say she deserves to die. I'll tell you what. Whichever one of you is perfect, go ahead and throw the first stone. You get to fire the first shots. And I love how John captures the order in which they left. Did you catch that? Starting with the oldest, they started to leave. That's because those old dudes said, oh, man, I know the stuff that I've messed up. I remember what I got away with back when I was 25. Let me go ahead and get out of here. And it took the youngsters a while. You know, the 18-year-olds who know absolutely everything about life, by the way, just in case you didn't know that. I used to be one, so that's how I know how much 18-year-olds know. They know everything. It took them a while to catch up. You know, they took them, they were a little slow to read the room and see they were the only ones still standing there. And so they left. Jesus says, hey, if you've ever been perfect in your life, you get to be the one who kills this lady. And they realized quickly when Jesus held up the mirror, they all walked away. And, as, and if that wasn't enough, then Jesus confronts the woman. The only perfect person in this story, the only one who had the right to hit her in the head with a rock, guess what he says? I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. 
the only person who had a right to demand perfection because he was perfect, Jesus. He doesn't condemn her. No one wants to be a hypocrite, but we can't be perfect. We're human beings. We're going to blow it. But the difference is this hypocrite that Jesus condemns, they act like they have it all together. They act like they've never done anything wrong. Instead, we should run to Jesus when we blow it. We should ask him to help us, and we should ask him to help us move forward. Because here's the truth. So many people stay disconnected from God because they're demanding some kind of perfection in other people that they would never hold themselves to. They're demanding a standard in others that they would never want to live up to. Where are you at in these stories? You crippled by uncertainty, spiritually locked up in a room like those apostles were because you don't know how to handle living out your faith now. You're nervous. You're afraid. What if I mess up? What if I blow it? I would say the same thing to you Jesus told to them. It's okay. Peace. It's going to be all right. Maybe you're like Thomas. You're struggling with doubt. You want to see proof. I would encourage you again, look around you at all the evidence of this risen God, this risen Jesus, who has the power to take a bunch of broken people like you and me and turn us into something beautiful. Stop doubting and believe. For most of us in the room, I think we fall into this category. We've experienced Christian hypocrisy. We've experienced some church hurt. We've seen Christians do ugly things in the name of Jesus. And we just don't know how to act, how to respond to that. Think about your own personal standards in your own life. Think about your moral standards that you hold for yourself. If that's too high and lofty of an idea, let me break it down for you. How many of you made a New Year's resolution? How many of you set a goal? How many of you said at one time in your life, I'm going to eat this and exercise now and do this stuff, and I'm not going to do that, and you set your plan? Many of you did that. Many of you told the world the first week of January all of the great things you were going to do. This was your year. That's what you said. I heard you. I screenshotted it, right? And it took you seven hot days to blow it. You came back to Jesus and said, I'm never going to do that thing ever again. And Jesus laughed at you and said, okay, I'll be here because he knows better. When you don't live up to your own standard, when you blow it, or maybe like this woman caught in adultery, you have been caught. You know what it feels like to be exposed and to be caught messing up, being a hypocrite. What is the thing that you desire the most in that moment in your life? Isn't it understanding? Isn't it patience? Isn't it grace? Isn't it another chance? Isn't that what you want when you're not perfect? When you mess up, isn't that what you, hey, I'm not perfect. You want a second chance. If that's what we want in our own lives, then why do we hold the church to a standard that we, the church, could never keep? I'm not excusing leadership failure. I'm not excusing people being unchristlike. I'm just saying, what if we took the posture of Jesus and saw a bunch of broken and messy people and we said, peace? It's all good. We're on this journey together. Neither do I condemn you. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to give peace and hope and to save. And the church is just a bunch of imperfect people being perfected by a perfect God. The church is not perfect. And yet, pound for pound, the local church has done more around the world. They've given more, loved more, served more than any other organization on planet Earth. I think what we're doing is working. But before we judge, Before we throw the stones, this is the painful part. We have to look at ourselves. 
none of us will ever fully recover from our own hypocrisy. So the best option then is we need to turn to God. So how do we live it out? How do we live this out? I think there's three steps we can do to to reconcile the hypocrisy we see, the stuff that we struggle with. The first thing is you have to keep showing up. Keep showing up. Brokenness and all. Don't stop connecting with the local church on Sunday in small group and gatherings. Keep showing up. We're better together, and none of us has it together, and none of us is going to be perfect. So keep coming. The second thing is you need to keep growing up. At one church, one of our core values is that it's okay to come messy, but the other part of that core value is it's not okay to stay that way. Remember, Jesus told the woman, neither do I condemn you. And then he said, go and sin no more. So you got to grow up. And then finally, keep looking up. Don't let what's wrong with church people keep you from focusing on what's right with God. Believe in God. The local church is the hope of the world because it's God's church. Jesus saves. He just uses broken and busted up people like you and like me. Jesus never called perfect people to follow him but he did call you. What are you going to do with the call of Jesus on your life? Rather than fixating on hypocrisy, rather than fixating on, well, this guy said this, but he did this, rather than looking around at who can I judge, who can I throw the stone at today? Instead, what if we just looked in the mirror and said, thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, God, that when I stood condemned, you stepped in the way and made a way for me to have right relationship with you, for me to have right relationship with other people. Don't stop showing up connecting with the local church. Don't stop growing and trying to be more like Jesus. And keep your eyes focused on God, not on the hypocrite. Jesus never called perfect people to follow him, but he did call you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the power of your word to save us and to change us. I thank you that you say that while we were still sinners, you demonstrate your love by sending Christ to die for us. God, if that's not a perfect picture of you stepping into brokenness and stepping into mess and making all things new, I don't know what is. If there's a person here, God, who's not said yes to you, I pray with their doubt and with their flaws and with their mess right now, they would say, God, forgive me for trying to figure it out on my own. I need you. And I know, God, you'll step in and save like only you can. Help the rest of us, God, to follow you. In spite of our brokenness, in spite of our not being able to live all this stuff out on our own power, we can't do it without you. We need your help. So help us. Keep us from blatant hypocrisy. Keep us from that thing, that stain of self-righteousness. And instead, God, help us to trust you. All of us are just people saved by you. Help us to live that out in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.